I selected unexpectedly the sixth psalm of the, the book of Psalms. And I'd just like to give a little bit of a brief history of, of the significance of this psalm in our literature, in our daily literature, in fact. And that this particular psalm is a psalm that King, King David composed. He used a particular instrument in singing this psalm. An eight-stranded harp was utilized in the singing of this song. And this is a particular song, interestingly enough, that we can call it a song, but it is King David's petition to be healed from a sickness that has overtaken him after his involvement with Bathsheba, according to most opinions. This particular psalm is one that is characteristically placed into our prayers on a daily basis. Some of you might be familiar with the Hebrew term of that part of the prayer book, which is called Tachanun, or Nefilas Apayim, where immediately after the repetition of the Amidah prayer, a shorter version, a longer mm -hmm. version, depending upon the day of the week and what your particular Nusach is, where you fall on your arm that does not have tefillin or on your left hand if you're not wearing tefillin, and you basically say to God in an introductory statement something that King David said to God, which is not here in Psalms but is in the book of Samuel, God, I am in much pain, and I would much prefer that whatever pain I need to go through, that it be with you rather than be pain that's delivered to me through man. That's the first thing that King David says. And after King David says that particular first verse, he then, he then he, after we say that particular verse from Samuel, <laughs> then we say chapter 6 of Psalms, in which we which King David speaks about sickness and how he petitions God to alleviate his sickness. And while I wasn't looking for a sick topic this evening, but there are many, many fascinating concepts in how King David approached suffering, how he approached sickness, and how he spoke to God and how he related to God in the midst of illness, and what were his petitions and what were his arguments that he should be lifted from the sickness. There are many, many different the things here. There's a wealth of, of, of Jewish philosophy. There's a wealth of deep yearning that King David has for God that expresses itself not in spite of his sickness but because of the sickness, which is something that I'd like to explain this evening. So that's the history that's behind this sixth psalm. And what I'm going to do, as I did in the past, is I'll read through the psalm. It's a relatively short psalm. It's only seven, eight, uh, 11 verses long. I'll read it through in a literal translation or close to a literal translation, and then we'll go back and we'll do piece by piece as we've done in the, in the first one, in the first psalm as well. For those of you that are interested, okay, I will try to keep to the schedule that I kept and next week we will be doing Psalm 20. So any of you that want to prepare, the next psalm would be Psalm 20, and the one afterwards is Psalm 23, which is a very famous one. Okay, so let's, let's, let's move ahead here. So allow me to, to, to give a literal translation here first, which is going to mean precious little to all of you. 
but it's important to at least know the body that we're dealing with before we go into it in depth. Lamnatseach beneginos alashminis mizmer ladavid. Lamnatseach, which comes from the root word nitzachon, which means victory, okay, many of the commentaries explain is a very common term that's used in the book of Tehillim. Now, the book of Tehillim is song. It's not going out to battle. And nevertheless, King David uses the term lamnatseach, he uses the term of victory. And this is explained in two ways. One way that it's explained is that, that most of King David's psalms had many instruments together that played in concert with each other, in orchestra with each other, that brought out the quality of the particular psalm. But obviously there were certain instruments that rose higher and were more audible and more recognizable in the piece of music than others. So one could say that those, those instruments that rose above the others were victorious in a certain sense or above the others. Now that's very cutesy, but what it really means on a deeper level is that just like you select in a piece of music which, piece, which, which sounds should be the dominant ones and which ones should be background, in order to be able to communicate a certain theme and a certain mood and a certain idea, so too what King David is doing over here is that King David is trying to conquer some of the normal moods and some of the normal reactions that human nature would have and to conquer them by his connection to God and through the inspiration of both word and music to be able to conquer that which would be the normal reaction to different things. And therefore, for instance, in this psalm, where King David is dealing with tremendous anguish and suffering and sickness, King David is looking to be, in a certain sense, victorious over some of the very normal ways to react, which is rage, resentment, anger, etc., etc. And he is employing his, his own spiritual wherewithal. He's employing the, the function that music has to really bring out of a person a deeper part of his being instead of just reacting in the simplest way to what's happening, you know, just to respond tit for tat to what's happening. And in that sense, yes, it's a lamnatseach. It's a, it's a victory. And at the same time, it's also a tremendous song. For when man can, uh, and when man is able to transcend some of the normal reactions to anguish and suffering that very often act out the person's anguish and suffering but don't really get the person any place and don't really solve anything and very often tempt the person to go over the brink of making the crisis even worse than what it is itself, there is an aspect of song when a person can come to that place of transcending some of the normal but often counterproductive reactions to suffering and to sickness. And therefore, yes, it's a victory of sorts, and it's beneginos, and it's also in melody, it's in song, it's music. Because on a certain level, as we explained in the introductory class to Tehillim, on a certain level, there's a deep mu music that comes out when a person doesn't complicate and twist and warp the roads to God, but finds in every event a way of blazing a straight path back to God. 
And the word shira, parenthetically, which means song, the great Hasidic master, the Svasemis, teaches us, comes from the root word yashar, which means straight. Man has things in his life that would tend to complicate the calculations of his relationship with God. And the power that song has and the power that music has is that it doesn't pay attention to all of the detours and all of the turnoffs that man would attempt himself to travel along that path and to stray on a straight line with God. Difficult, yes, but still on a straight line with God. Yes, sir. So King David opens up and he says, Lamnatseach Beneginos, a victorious melody, Alashminis on the eighth, which literally, and we'll explain more later what this means, Alashminis, which means that it was played primarily on the eighth strand of the harp. In other words, the melody, the, the, uh, it shows you how much I know about music. I love it, but I don't know how to explain it. But the, the eighth strand on the harp, which is a certain tone, okay, of, of the music. Mizmer Ladovin, and this is truly a song of David's. And now David opens up and he says like this, God, Hashem, God, do not reprimand me with your anger. The and do not afflict me with pain with your wrath. So we'll come back to this in a little while. He's using two words, reprimand and affliction, and he's using anger and wrath as terminology, which is very, very important. Hashem. Show me, show me mercy, show me charity, even if I don't deserve it. Because I have come to a place where I have lost all strength to struggle with the sickness anymore. And this doesn't mean simply in a physical way, it also means in a spiritual way. As if to say, and we'll talk about this a lot later on, as if to say that King David was saying to God, it's not that I have the wherewithal and I resent what you've sent me and I've said I don't want to spend my energy on this. King David is saying, no, if I had the energy to deal with it, I would deal with it. But I'm at the point where I can't deal with it anymore. And therefore, Khaneni, show me compassion, even if it's not deserved, ki umlalani, because I'm, I'm, I can't handle it anymore. I feel cut off from a source of life. I don't feel connected anymore. And I don't have the wherewithal. And therefore, rifa'eni Hashem, bring healing into me. Ki nivhalu because the very structure of my body is, is, is trembling with the trauma of my sickness. The nafshi, and not only my physical body is trembling, but nafshi, my soul as well, nivhala, it too is in a state of tremendous fear and tremendous uh, trembling. Not only is it in, that, in an equal state, but the nafshi nivhala me'od, Ma'od, which means very much. In other words, I feel the crisis of uh, the, the fear, the anxiety, the trembling, the, 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 almost like a feeling of crumbling on a more critical level, even spiritually than physically. Va'ata Hashem and you, God, Admasai. How much longer do I have to wait for you to come in and to intervene and to heal me? We'll talk about this a lot because this is there's something tremendously beautiful about those four words. Shuvah Hashem, and therefore God, return, return, 
chaltzanafshi and give vigor into my into my soul. Haishiani and save me from what if you don't intervene is is eventually going to happen. Laman if for no other reason out of out of loving kindness. And now King David adds another argument, and King David continues and he says, Ki ein ba because the manifestation of God, the beauty of God does not reveal itself through death but rather through life. Bish'ail, and in the grave, mi yaydalach, who can open up his mouth and, and express the thrill and the excitement of a relationship with you. Yagati ba'anchasi, I have become very weary of all of my groaning. My groaning is not a release system anymore that relieves me, but it tires me out. Ascha b'cholayla mitasi, and every night, there are different interpretations. Either my bed swims in tears, or my bed has become a totally abominable place to live because it is so soaked up with tears. And again, saying it in another way, my tears, my bed, have, my bed has become totally moisturized. By, by what takes place in the evening. Now there's a significance to this which I'll talk about a little bit later on also. There is a particular significance to a person crying out to God when the entire world sleeps. And we'll talk about that soon. There's, there's a very deep meaning to it. And now King David continues and says, Ashishamikas Aini. My eyes have become blurred. Their vision has, my vision has been taken away from me. Not from the pain of the sickness, but from an anger that I have, a tremendous deep resentment that I have, that in these moments that I am suffering, my enemies stand up against me. And they say, aha, this proves that we were right and you were wrong and therefore you are afflicted and you are suffering. So maybe even more so, then the pain of the sickness itself is how people interpret, how my enemies interpret my sickness as being a proof of my guilt and a proof of my lowly spiritual state. Aska behold Sairi, and my eyes have become detached from their place from which they can function f uh, to give me clear vision because of my enemies. Now, clearly, clearly we see over here a transition from King David concentrating on his illness and moving from his illness into his political place or lack of place and his, the enemies that he possesses in his life. This is a subject that we need to talk about. Is King David just figuring that if I'm pouring out my heart to God, I might as well pour out my heart about all of my problems? And therefore, after talking about his sickness, he figures once I'm crying, I might as well cry about my other problems. Or is there some kind of a connection between these two things? Is there a relationship between these two things? And, and now King David, all of a sudden, okay, in the midst of, the, of, the, of these tremendous tears, all of a sudden, King David bursts out, and King David says like this, Disappear, all you wicked doers. He's referring to his enemies. Get out of my life. Leave me. Get out of here. Why? Because I know that as I pray today and I still don't feel better, I know that God has already heard my voice 
and, and has paid attention to my theory. <laughs> a very significant statement, again, which we'll explain as we go through it. Shema Hashem Tchinasi. God has already heard my pleading. Hashem Tfilasi Yikach. And God has already taken my prayers. And therefore, Yevayshu v'yibahalu ma'ayid kalayvay. And because I know deep down that God has already accepted my prayers, the delight that the enemy has today will turn into tremendous embarrassment. Why? Because if I become miraculously healed, so for everything that was pointed to me that I was, that I was, uh, that I was a spiritual villain, my miraculous healing will it, it, turn the whole thing the opposite way. However, Yeshuvu, and let my enemies come back to me. Let them come back to me and treat me like a human being that I am. And I promise them, Yevoshu Raga, that their shame with me will only be one moment. I will not remind them, and I will not hold it against them forever. There will be one moment of shame, a second moment of change, and then we can be friends again. It is a phenomenal thing in the midst of suffering and in the midst of people prodding him on that all of his suffering is a proof of their claim of his, his ineptness and his lack of spiritual caliber, King David is prepared to say, I'm warning you and I'm concerned of the dying shame that you will go through because I know that God has already heard me and will miraculously heal me. And therefore, I beg of you, get off it quickly. And if you get it off it quickly, the shame will be a moment of shame. And there will be no other reminder and no other recall from me that will ever put you into an embarrassing situation. It's quite a level. Quite, quite a level. Okay. So we've done the superficial definition of the chapter. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back and I'd, slightly, I'd like to piece by piece go through the verses, share with you different things that the commentaries say that really mold a picture of how a Jew looks at sickness, or at least part of the picture. Now, the first thing that I mentioned is the concept of victory, the concept of victory in melody, the concept of song. But we were talking about the harp with the eight strands and how this piece of music was being played on the eighth strand. Now, that's all very lovely, and it would have been terribly pertinent to us if we had in a harp with eight strands and that we wanted to play, we wanted to come here tonight and play this, you know, this chapter to a harp. Why for all times was this recorded to be played on the eighth, on the eighth strand of the harp? What is it supposed to mean? So the Medrash teaches us that King David, in this very first verse, was making a relationship between the concept of sickness and healing and a concept of sickness and healing that starts very, very early on in a Jew's life. The concept of bris milah, the concept of circumcision. Where we find, where we find in the concept of circumcision that a child was brought into this world and with the premise, which is not a philosophical discussion for this evening, with a certain imperfection that needs to be corrected and the child, yes, the child goes through something which can classify as, as being sick, being weakened. However, there is an ultimate healing that comes very naturally to this sickness. And that particular child that went through the circumcision 
has indelibly marked into his very being a capacity for a spiritual level, for a, for a spiritual level, for a spiritual level for the rest of his life. Now, tonight's class is not going to be a sheer on circumcision. Okay, that's not the intent of this class. However, just to say it very briefly, every mitzvah has a certain power. It brings a certain holiness, a certain energy into the human being. And it is critical for the human being to have different energies brought into his being so that he should be able to grow up and have a healthy relationship without distraction to God. One of the things that distracts us terribly from our relationship with God is our inability to understand or our unwillingness to accept the fact that in man's most physical drive and in his, in his, most, and in his deepest biological needs, there can also be a partnership with God that sanctifies those relationships and those functions. And what we are taught is that on a metaphysical level, the energy that lies behind the mitzvah of circumcision gives the man that needs it so desperately, okay, a spiritual connection, a potential spiritual connection to morality. It doesn't guarantee morality, but it gives the human being a spiritual connection to morality, something to live up to that, is, that becomes a part of his being if he so chooses to receive it and to accept it. Now, so the eighth strand is because circumcision takes place on the eighth day. Now, there is another, pl there is another place, okay, in, in our literature where we focus on this eight, and it's a symbolism of circumcision. Where is it? It's in the Amida prayer that we pray three times a day. The Amida prayer, each one of the requests in the Amida prayer is based on verses. Now, the particular verses that talk about redemption, redemption, and healing, there's a particular verse in Psalms which talks about redemption and healing. Something or another, I don't remember the exact words, but the way that it is in the verses in Psalms, healing comes first, redemption comes second. Now, when we open up our prayer book and we look for the request for redemption and the request for healing, it departs from the order that it is in the verse in Psalms, and we have in the seventh blessing redemption, and in the eighth blessing healing. And the question is why? Why does it go away from the order that it is in Psalms? So one of the answers that is given is that we want to remind God, which needs an explanation, which we'll talk about it momentarily, we want to remind God of the fact that we understand that all human sickness and the healing that takes place, we don't look at, at, look at it as an unnecessary part of our lives. But we understand, in other words, a person that gets sick and then becomes well. So a person can think to himself, it would have been better that I wouldn't have become sick. Thank God I became well. So at least it neutralizes an event. But what would have been better? What would have been better would have been that I wouldn't have gotten sick and I wouldn't have had to be healed. Right? What the Jew says to God is no. We recognize the fact that part of a person's growth in this world can require, doesn't necessarily require, but can require 
that a person goes through a period of time where he's not completely connected to his health and then he regains his health. And because we recognize that, we actually accept it upon ourselves in the midst of bris milah. And therefore, God, we, when our sages put together the Amida prayer, we ask for healing and we put it as purposely in the eighth blessing to say to God, we're not trying to, so to speak, kick at the whole concept of sickness. That's not what we're doing. And I'll prove it to you because we are prepared to inflict upon ourselves something that's a temporary sickness because we believe ultimately we will be different people for it. So it's not that I'm coming to you with a rejection of the purposefulness of a person going through sickness and healing. No, I'll prove it to you even because I'm making it in the eighth blessing, which is brismila. In other words, we recognize that there is a function for sickness and healing in human development. However, let the function go easy, let the function go quick, let the function, let the function happen in ways that are bearable, etc., etc. So there, too, we talk about the concept of eight. Aha! If that's the reason why we, talk of why we put the blessing of healing as the eighth blessing instead of the seventh, in order to make the connection to circumcision, now we understand why King David played this particular petition to become well, his own rifa'enu, he played it on the eighth strand of the harp to hint, to hint to God that he's not in rejection of sick. In other words, he's not coming to debate God about the process of sickness and healing. That's not his agenda. That's not his forum with God for al-Hashminis. I'm a Jew that lives with the eighth day. I'm a Jew that believes in the function of the eighth day. However, with believing in the function of the eighth day, nevertheless, I'm asking you to hear my petition of healing. So it's not that I'm rejecting sickness. I just feel that this is the time for healing. Now, this is an idea. This idea, which I've just shared with you, it might be very simple to you, but not simple to live with. In other words, intellectually, it can make a lot of sense, but it's far from simple when we ourselves become sick because we don't want to be sick we want to be well and one of the ways that we try to shackle off from ourselves things that happen to us is not by going through them but by not accepting them to begin with and King David is saying very clearly I make no bones about it Al Hashminis. I'm a Jew that lives with the concept of the eighth day I, I'm not coming from a place of not understanding its function. I'm coming from a place of understanding the, its function, I'm accepting its function, and nevertheless I'm calling you out, calling out to you and asking you, please heal me. Now, this concept reflects itself, reflects itself in many things that King David says in this psalm. But before I demonstrate to you how it reflects itself in everything that King David says in this psalm, I would like to, to share with you for a moment some of the deeper philosophical significance of what I've just said, some of what it's all about. The great Hasidic masters, in particular of Tzadik HaKohen, discusses what is the concept of Tachanun, the concept of falling on one's arm and turning to God and quoting from Samuel and saying to God, God, I am in much pain, but I much prefer being in your hands than, 
the pain being delivered through any human being. And then I go through this entire petition of healing. Ripsodic HaKohen says that that whole section of the prayer book, which is said parenthetically every day of the week with the exception of Shabbos and holidays, Ripsodic HaKohen says there is something very, very deep about it. And he explains it in the following way. He gives an example, which is an extreme example, but I'm just going to use the example to demonstrate the idea. A Jew lives, okay, a Jew lives with a concept. It's classical. It's part of what Judaism is all about. That there are certain lines that a Jew will not cross, even if it means at the cost of his life, if it's to deny, for instance, the existence of God, even if it will cost him his life, he will not cross that line. There are other examples as well, but I'll just use that one as an example. How do we view that kind of a concept of martyrdom? What is it supposed to mean? One could be tempted to say, well, it's religious fanaticism. It's taking something to an extreme, etc., etc. How do we really understand it. Very often we're inspired by it. But what is it really supposed to mean? So I once explained in a class what I really think Jewish martyrdom is. What Jewish martyrdom is, is a statement which says to God that if I have to live in this world without you, it's not really worth living. It's not worth it. If I have to live here without you, okay, uh, with, without a relationship with you, without a sense of a willingness of, of, for my existence to be... In other words, without, without you, then it's not worth it to me. And therefore, the concept of martyrdom is not a concept, oh, I'm a big hero, I'm giving this all up. It's not that kind of a concept. But if you put me into a position that I cannot have a relationship with God and that I should renounce and proclaim that I have nothing to do with God anymore in my life, then it is all, it's an inevitable decision of mine that life is not worth it anymore. Now, that kind of a definition of martyrdom, if you listen to it carefully, is not a definition that can only be accomplished in the moment of death, but it redefines every moment that we live. It means that the value of every moment that we live, we, come, we understand, only gains its value from the fact that I can share it with God. The moment that I am robbed of the opportunity of sharing that moment of life with God, okay, or sharing life in general with God, life's not worth it. That becomes a definition of what I see as the ultimate value of existence. When I see that the ultimate value of existence is God, then it is not at all peculiar or unusual or unnatural that when somebody wants to take God out of my life, that the inevitable and natural response of mine is, so then life's not worth living anymore. But the only reason why it's natural, that it's natural to, to happen, is because in life it's the perspective. If in life it's, that's the perspective, so then it becomes natural. It becomes natural that when it's taken away from me, so then life me loses its meaning. Now, what does that really mean? Okay, now we're extrapolating a little. We can extend this out a little bit. That's an extreme form. But on a lesser form, 
and maybe sometimes a more difficult form because it's harder to live for God than to die for God. On a lesser form, what this basically means is like this, that a Jew stands before God and says like this, God, you are central to my existence. And if there's any reason okay, that you're not in concert with, with, with my existence, and for some reason you don't want that I should continue existing for whatever reason. It doesn't necessarily have to be for negative reasons that I don't deserve it or this or that. It could be for many reasons. But the idea is that I should have a desire for life if it's not your desire. That's what Nefila Satayim is. Nefila Satayim is, is man's statement to God that even the most precious thing in my life, life itself, is not more precious to me than what you want for me. This is what Rav Tzaddik says. That's the statement that we're saying to God. A person can say, yes, God is very important and very, very central, but after everything is said and done, there's still something that's more important than God too. Once I have that, so then I can consider inviting God in also, and that's life. So when it comes to life, God might feel that this person doesn't need or shouldn't have life anymore for whatever reason, good or bad, whatever the reason might be. And there, I pick a bone with God, and I say, God, on this one issue, I cannot agree with you. Okay? And whatever your opinion is in terms of if I should be or shouldn't be in this world, okay, I am going to be stubborn and insist on being. Right? The great Hasidic master says that the highest level of a person's relationship with God is that he ultimately never wants something that God doesn't want for him. If God doesn't want it for me, so then I put aside my own desire for myself. And this is what Rav Tzadik HaKohen says is the concept of Nefila Satayim. The concept of Nefila Satayim is you fall on your hand. What is that supposed to mean? I am not going to stand erect and stand up to God if God wants something different for me. Now, it's very interesting that if that is the concept of what Nefila Satayim is, so then it becomes extremely significant. It becomes extremely significant in how we deal with the circumstances that God brings into my life. Yes, I want to affect change, and I want to learn how I could affect change, and I want to be able to gain from everything that God gives me in a way that it was meant to. But bottom line, I am not a rival with God, and I'm not, I'm not contesting God. I'm accepting but I'm asking God to give me the energy and the fortitude to gain from the experience or remove the experience because it doesn't have a purpose because I'm too weak to deal with it anymore. But I'm not taking up the position of God, you want one thing and I don't want it. That's clearly not the attitude. What the attitude clearly is that if you want it, so, so then I, I have nothing to say. I would have preferred it differently but I'm not going to stand up to you. However, I believe that there's a purpose to it, and I believe that either the purpose has been met, or that I commit myself to meet its purpose, or that I've come to the point that there's going to be a negative return. I don't feel that I have the strength anymore. So I'm with you, God. I want the return, but I've come to a place where I can't produce the return that it's supposed to bring me. That's the, the philosophical part of it. 
Now, this is an extremely important concept. It's a very difficult one, but a very important one. Because the minute that a person's attitude becomes one, I am not your rival, God, and I'm not contesting you, and I'm willing to, to approach what you're delivering to me, try to understand it, try to benefit from it, and at the same time be honest with you, God, when I, I really think it's reached the limit of purpose, and beseech you that I've done what I've been able to do with it and therefore take it away from me. This is a very important thing, because what this really does is that it opens man up to being able to receive in the most difficult moments the, the, the presence of God within his, within his problem, within his crisis, within his pain. Instead of making God into a rival and then having to fight the war all alone. You see, when, when there is a deeper attitude, which is a normal human nature attitude, of contesting and becoming a rival with God on a certain level, you can't then include God as a, for your fortitude because here you're talking out of one side of your mouth and, you, and you're saying, quit it, God. It doesn't make any sense. You've made, and therefore you've put, so to speak, God on the other side of the fence and then you're left on a certain level bereft of a tremendous amount <coughs> of fortitude <coughs> and strength that you would be able to get. Now, if this is the idea, so now let's move through some of the verses and demonstrate how this idea comes through in everything that King David says here. Okay, and then I'll gladly open up to some questions. Hashem, al God, do not, do not, come down with tremendous anger and, uh, in your reprimand of me and do not show your wrath in, in the way that you afflict me. So I pointed out as I was going through it before that we're describing God ang in anger and wrath and in reprimand and in affliction. What are the differences? Okay. So now, let's first talk about reprimand and affliction. And listen carefully, because this is a phenomenal thing. If you want to look it up later on, it's based in the, t in the, in the teachings of the Malbim. It was a, a great writer on the Navi. He writes like this. He says, Tochacha, Tochacha, which is reprimand, its entire function is future-oriented. When you reprimand a person, when you try to show up to a person that there's an inconsistency or there's something that's not right there, are you trying by your reprimand to inflict pain upon the person? No, not at all. In fact, if you're trying to inflict pain, you've gone out of the parameters of what the whole command to reprimand a person constructively is. So the function is not pain. What is the function? The function is a hope for the future that the future will be different for this person in terms of his behavior. That's what Tochacha is, completely future-oriented, that the tomorrow will be different. What, on the other hand, is Yisurim, affliction? Affliction is, is the spiritual cleansing of the past. These are two different things, a look to the future and a cleansing of the past. Now, so now we know the difference between reprimand, which is future-oriented, and Yisurim, which is past spiritual cleansing. Now, let's go to Af and Chema. Af 
is I, de I defined as anger, okay? What af really is, yes, it's anger, but it's, it is a completely acted out anger. What is an acted out anger? An acted out anger is where I show my displeasure, I show my, my, the, how upset I am and the intensity of how in upset I am. However, I do not leave inside of me resentments. There are no resentments. There is nothing that's festering inside of me. Okay? Now, some people get angry, and maybe it takes some time to get over the anger, but they don't, nothing festers inside. They're very verbal. They're, they, you know, they let it all hang out. That's af. Okay? That's af. On the other hand, chema is a different thing. Chema is that it's very conceivable that when I look at you, I even smile at you. But inside, it's kachzach. It's cooking inside with such anger and hate and resentment. Oh, ah. Right? So each one can be without the other. You can have af without chema. You can have the outside expressions of anger and displeasure without the chema. You can have chema, you can have this inside anger and hate without the outside expression of af. So af can exist without chema, chema can exist without af. And therefore, the Malbum says like this. When it comes to tochacha, when it comes to reprimand, King David says to God, listen to this, it's very beautiful. When it comes to reprimand, I honestly believe God that your reprimand is future-oriented. So I don't even have to ask you, God, not to show me that internal, that to, 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 to come to me in an internal wrath, the chema. Because, because chema has nothing at all to do with the future. What a person lets fester inside of himself in a deep-rooted anger is not in any way future-oriented. So therefore, God, King David says to God, when I talk about that part of your dealings with me, that's tochacha, I don't even have to talk about chema, because I know there's no chema in tochacha. But there can be af. You might want to put on a very good show in order to make sure that I don't do it again tomorrow. So therefore, King David says, I believe that tochacha is future-oriented, and therefore I'm not even going to even believe that you're doing it out of that internal festering anger. But you could put on a good show. You could put on an a a external anger, which is powerful. God, I'm willing to listen to your reprimand, even without an outside demonstration of anger. Listen to that. What is King David saying? Is he making God into a rival? Or what he's trying to say is that he's open to hearing God without, uh, without anything added on to it except the ears that want to hear. And then, King David says, but I know that there's another part of my relationship with you, which is that you want to cleanse me of the past. You want to cleanse me of the past. And in wanting to cleanse me of the past, there's no telling, there's no telling, okay, there's no telling how deep you have to go in order to uproot the negativity that I've brought in. And therefore, and therefore, King David says, What's in regards to the hopeful future, I know for sure that it's, it's going to be tempered. 
and it will be more external than internal. But in terms of the past, what I've done, I don't know. Maybe the level of what I've done and what I've hurt and what I've destroyed is so difficult that maybe what you will deliver to me is an affliction that is a description of chema, that is a description of an internal, a deep internal anger. And therefore, when it comes to the past, which is what I did, the don't give me an affliction that ma- is a manifestation of an internal anger. It's a very interesting, it's an interesting thing. The Targum, the Unklis, which is another commentary here, says a phenomenal thing. Do not, in your anger, reprimand me. So, Tochicheni, usually, what does Tochicheni mean? Tochacha, what does it usually mean? To show up to a person as inconsistency, so on and so forth. All of a sudden, the Targum over here takes this word, Tochicheni, and the Targum says, you know what it really means? Tachni to humble me. In other words, I know that I need to be humbled a little bit. I know that the mistake that I made was out of a lack of humility. And I know that if you, if, if you reprimand me, that you're looking to create a humility in me so that I won't repeat the thing that I did. But God, please, I'm prepared to accept humility. And don't force it upon me with an anger, with an ass. Okay. Now, let's continue. If there are questions, I'll gladly take them soon, but let's just try to, to develop this idea. Chaneni Hashem. Chaneni Hashem. Please show Sickness is, is brought to a person so that the person should be cleansed of his past and that his future should be a better one. But how could I really get to that place if I live for such a long time feeling weak from being disconnected, from feeling a sense of disconnection. So, Chaneni Hashem ki umlal ani, and Rifaini Hashem, and heal me, God, ki nivhalu atzamai, because the, the structure of my physical body trembles, the nafshi nivhalu ma'od, and my soul trembles even more, ba'ata Hashem, and you, God, ad masai. How much longer do I have to wait? Now let's explain this. It's a phenomenal thing that King David is saying here. The Alshech explains, the Alshech explains, and this is really based on the Medrash, so maybe we should start with the Medrash. The Medrash wants to explain this verse. Chaneni Hashem, God help me because I feel weak from being disconnected and my body trembles and my soul trembles even more. So God, how much longer will it be? So the, the, there's a medrash which says like this. I want to explain to you what King David is saying. And the medrash says there was once this person that was attacked by a band, a banded, a band of robbers. And each one of the robbers wanted to get his punch in. You know, and to really beat me up but good and then rob me, okay, and leave me to either either die or to recuperate. So, so the Medrash says this story about this person 
that one of the one of the group in the in the in the band of robbers threw stones at him, and then another one hit him in the face, and another one did this to him, and another one did this to him, and then they left him. And then he trekked his way home, and he pulled himself up onto his bed, and he called out, he called out to God, and he said, "Every bone in my body is aching from something else." This is aching from a, from a punch. This is aching from a board that was swung at me. This is aching from this, and this is aching from this. Every part of my body is screaming out with the pain that was delivered to it in the ways that it was delivered. So too, the Medrash says, Kach Yisrael, so too the Jewish people, they travel through many gullison, they travel through many exiles, and they get beat up in many different ways. And then we trudge ourselves back and we just open up to God and we say to God, every part of my body aches in a different way. This is what the Medrash says. Now seemingly, the Medrash is not adding on any deeper meaning except to make this much more dramatic. It is seemingly adding on a, a dimension about exile and about the Jewish people and how, about how a, a Jew comes with all of his wounds to God and says, I have this wound, and I have that wound, and I have this wound, and they're all different, but they all ache. My prayer is a scream of pain. What does this Madrash mean? So the al says a phenomenal definition of this. And the al says like this. The al says that the human being is a physical structure, and within the physical structure is a spiritual structure. He says, and even the physical structure of the human being needs to be nurtured by a connection to, its, to its, the spiritual structure from within. How are, how are the different parts of the body spiritually nurtured? The different parts of the, of the physical body are spiritually nurtured. They're spiritually nurtured by the mitzvot that are performed with those parts of the body. Now, King David has become sick, and in his sickness, that has deterred him from being able to do many mitzvot. King David also feels that he most probably got sick to begin with because he turned away from certain mitzvot. But what King David is saying is that I've come to the point that my physical body is screaming out in the pain of the spiritual nurturing that I chose not to give it or the spiritual nurturing that it can't have now because I'm so ridden with sickness that I can't use the body the way it needs to be spiritually nurtured. So King David is calling out to God and saying to God, you want to know why I want a healthy body? Because my body hurts. But I know that my body hurts on a deeper metaphysical level because it's cut off and it feels weak from being cut off. The cut off that I made for it, the cut off that it has, because in the midst of my sickness I can't worship you the same way. I can't walk and I can't talk and I can't do the way I was able to do before. This is the first thing that King David said, which is a phenomenal concept. It means that when a person is turning to God and asking God for healing, again he's not making God into a rival. But what he's saying is <clears throat> that my whole body was created in a way to serve you. And in this sickness, it's aching from the pain of not being able to serve you. 
Then King David continues, and King David says, But the part of me that shakes and trembles with even greater pain is the neshama that's inside of me. And the Alshech continues, and the Alshech says, What is this supposed to mean? He says, because King David knew that he was living in this world on borrowed time. King David was to, to, to live me a, a, few, a mere few hours in this world. That was his destiny. And first man, Adam Arishan, gave King David 70 years of his life, which we discussed at length in the first class. And we explained that the concept that was behind that was that King David, through his lifetime, had to fix and correct the stuff that first man did not accomplish in his lifetime. But now, in the midst of his life, King David gets sick, and he's not doing the work that he has to do. So King David turns to God and he says, to begin with my life here is to fix and to correct things that weren't corrected earlier on. But now sickness has come in. Sickness has virtually halted the entire tikkun, the entire correction that is necessary. And therefore I turn to you, God, and I say, Ad Masai. How much longer is this? There's work to do in this world. I know that I'm here with a mission. I know that I'm here with a calling. There's work to do. How much longer can this go on without my jeopardizing the fulfillment for which I was sent here for 70 years? According to another Madrashic source, which is based, which reflects itself in Rashi, when when King David turns to God and says, "Va'ata Hashem ad Masai," and you, God, how much longer? The Medrash says an example, and the Medrash says that there was this person that was sick, and he was getting sicker by the moment, and he had to call into the doctor. And the doctor knew more or less what was wrong with him. And the doctor said, I'll get over there and I'll help you. And he's patiently waiting, hour after hour, hour after hour, and the doctor's not coming. The doctor's not coming. And if the doctor's going to wait much longer, he might come with a very wonderful medicine. But he won't be able to heal me anymore because I'm already going to be gone. So too, the Madrash says, that King David said to God, I know that you're a Rafe. I know that you're a healer. And I know that you have in your bag the medicine that's necessary to heal me. So it's not a question if there is an ability to heal or not. And there isn't a question even if there wasn't a call into the, into the doctor and if the doctor knows if I'm sick or not. That is no question of that. Atomabit, you're looking at me, Rashi says. Atmosai, how long are you going to look at me and not do something for me? Again, a tremendous confirmation of a very, very straight, straight prayer. Not getting convoluted and twisted. Are you there? Do you have the capacity to heal? Do you know what's the matter with me? It's, no, 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 no. I know that you're standing there and you know and you're standing there and you're watching. So how long can you watch and not do? It's a phenomenal way of, of prayer. Right? It's, 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 extreme, it's extremely direct. 
It's extremely, in other words, it's, it's in no way twisting the honesty and the sincerity and the completeness of what man is trying to engage from God. Now, and therefore, he turns to God and he says, Shuva, Shuva Hashem Chaltzanafshi, give me back my health, Hashiyani, and save me, Laman Chastacha. And then King David says, Ki You are not known to the world in death. You're known to the world by your gift of life. And man cannot mirror, and man cannot manifest the beauty of who you are to the world in his grave. He has to do that during life. What the world to come is, is another subject. But you created man that he should be able to mirror your existence. That won't be, that can't happen in the state that I'm in. Again, connecting his well-being with a charge, with a mission. Not a separate need, not a separate endeavor, not a separate in- agenda. Yogati Bamchasi, now, according to many commentaries, especially the al he's saying to God like this. He's saying, I know that this sickness came to me because of my involvement with Bathsheba. The subject of Bathsheba is not a subject for this evening. But whatever it is, God was, God was reprimanding and afflicting King David because of his involvement with Bathsheba. And now King David is turning to God and saying, you must heal me because I'm not going to live through this operation. It's an operation. You're trying to heal me. I won't live through it. So therefore, you better make a quick job here before it's all over. Okay? The operation's successful. The patient dies. It's not, there's no purpose to that. But there's a big problem. Where is the cleansing going to come from? If, if, uh, if the therapy has to be aborted in the middle... Where's the therapy going to come from? So King David turns to God and King David commits himself and he says, my bed will become a sponge of tears. And the Alshach says there's particular significance in King David talking about his bed becoming a sponge of tears. He says, because if the sickness and the affliction that was coming to King David was directly related to his involvement with Bathsheba, so King David understood that he needed cleansing from something that involved the bed. And therefore he turned to God and he said that I have been been brought to the spiritual awareness of knowing that my bed needs to be soaked in tears in order to be cleansed from what I brought into it. I'm not looking for shortcuts. I I know that cleansing is necessary. And I commit myself never to lose my commitment to cleansing. And now, King David says something phenomenal. I want you to listen very carefully because it's most probably the most delicate crossroads. Because I presented a question before. King David's talking about sickness, how to relate to sickness, how to petition for healing. And then all of a sudden, in the middle, he seems to make a jump over into talking about his enemies awfully peculiar. Okay, so so some commentaries say that as sick as I am, I'm even sicker for my enemies. Some commentaries say as sick as I am, my sickness gets worse when I know how my enemies interpret it. Okay, they're two nice bridges, but they sound a little bit forced. You know, know, you're pressed 
be able to connect two parts of a chapter together, so you push a little bit, like the rabbi Saturday morning that has to push the current events into the portion of the week. You've know, you got to push a little bit. Sounds a little bit pushed. I'd like to share with you what I think this really means. When a person does something that is internally, spiritually negative to themselves, one of the things that God does ultimately to help a person is that he plays out what man has done to himself in an external arena. In other words, if I do something negative, I have really, so to speak, fed the enemy. I've really established within myself a treacherous enemy, a great danger to myself. However, I might not necessarily recognize the nature of the enemy, the venom, the hatred of the enemy. I might not recognize it. I know I did something that said do not do and I did it. But I don't really necessarily see it as a venom, as a poison, as a danger. I don't see it that way. And what God very often does in order to help a person, a form of communication to the person is that he plays out externally what man has done to himself internally. This is a fundamental concept in how a Jew understands history, Jewish history. It doesn't legitimize anything that anybody has done to us as a people. But it is our own moment of internal introspection that we have to say to ourselves that the outside arena is a mirror of what we've done to ourselves internally. And therefore, King David starts talking about his enemies. And he says to himself, here I'm talking about sickness and spiritual cleansing and healing and everything else. He says, but you know what really hurts the deepest of all? Because if I have so many enemies in my life, it must be that God is trying to teach me and he's trying to show me what kind of an enemy I put inside of myself. See, of, of the greater pain is not the sickness. The sickness is, is, is to improve the future. The sickness is to cleanse the past. He says, but you know what I draw out of, you know what I draw even more significantly than my, than my sickness? You know what he hits even a deeper, deeper spot in me? If I have enemies, and some of them were such unnatural enemies. One's own son turned against him. A king that once loved him and needed him so desperately hunts him down like an animal. So King David says, you know what has con con literally blinded me, confused me way, way further, much more than the sickness that you have brought upon me, is the mirror of what you've shown me that I've done to myself inside. Now, with this, with this, when a person looks at his enemy, okay, before I said what I said this evening, a person looks at his enemy, at his enemy is, get out of my life. You don't belong in my life. Nobody invited you here. Okay, et cetera, et cetera. Get out of here. Now, with the perception of what we're saying now, when King David screams out in the next verse and he says, Suru mimeni kolpai aleyavin, get out of my life, you wicked doers. Who is he really talking to? He's really talking to the enemy that's reflected internally. Suru me many, get out of here. I know what I've created and get out of here. Why? Why? You know why I think that, you know why I'm telling you get out of here, don't reflect yourself anymore, don't be near me anymore, because God has accepted my tears. God has accepted my prayers. 
means that everything that I made myself vulnerable to, all of the strange things that I've brought into myself, which have done all kinds of strange things to me, okay, I can say now, get out. There's no room for you anymore. I brought you here. I admit it, but there's no room for you anymore. Because Shama Hashem Kailbechi. Now, in this regard, in this regard, in this regard, I want to demonstrate this with the Medrash. Okay? And the Medrash brings it out a lot better than I just did. The Medrash says that there was once a Melech, there was once a king who loved his son dearly and gave his son beautiful, beautiful clothes to wear and a whole wardrobe of clothes. And the son became very arrogant with all with his beautiful wardrobe and everything else and he wanted to show off and so on and so forth. And he decided that in order to show off, he needed to, to be able to, to jump and to do different calisthenics that would be able to show, you know, the, the, you know, the shirt, the pants, the, the gown, the cape, the, you know. And what he found himself doing once in showing off the beautiful wardrobe is that he didn't jump right. Okay? And he jumped straight into a swamp. And obviously when he was pulled out of the swamp, there was nothing to show off about anymore. He was dripping with this junk. Now he knew good and well that it was his own fault. And he knew good and well that as much as the king loved him, the king would be very disturbed about what he did to his clothes and how unnecessary it was for it to happen. But he had two options. One option was that let the news filter back to the king, okay, and I'll lay low and hope that nothing happens, or maybe I should come clean and deliver the message myself in embarrassment and in a certain amount of pain, but by my coming as a son and saying, look what I did to myself and I'm awfully sorry, okay, maybe I'll have a more compassionate ear than if he hears it from somebody else. And so the child went in his dripping mess to the king and said, this is what I did to myself, I'm sorry. So King David, the Medrash says, is saying the same thing to God. King David is saying that what I did to myself, okay, I'm prepared that it shouldn't get back to you in other ways. It sh it, that it shouldn't have to be delivered in other ways. It shouldn't have to come back to you in other ways. What is King David basically saying? King David is saying, I don't need and I don't want a process by which I get back to you through the information getting back to you and all kinds of different things and all of the processes of how you're going to react to it getting back to you. I am, I am prepared to bear myself completely before you in what I did. Okay? And therefore, all you ill-sayers, all you ill-sayers, you have no place before, before God. And this is what King David is saying. All you ill-sayers that would want to come and deliver a message to God of what I did, don't deliver the message. I'm prepared to deliver the message myself of what I did to myself. I'm willing to face Hashem with the things that I did. And therefore, King David turns to all of the people that would, the prosecutors of a person's life, who bring prosecution before God. And King David says, I don't need prosecutors to tell God, so to speak, what I did. I will be my own prosecutor. I will bring myself before God because I know 
that if I bring myself before God, I bear myself totally before God, right, that that will circumvent the need for all of the other prosecutors and all of the processes of prosecutors and all of the pain of the prosecution process taking over. Okay, let's finish up here. So, get out of my life because I, I am prepared to bear myself in prayer before God myself. I don't need any other vehicles. I don't need any other prosecutors. Hashem Hashem And because I'm prepared to bear myself before God, okay, and I circumvent the prosecution process of others bringing the prosecution, so the kind the Alshuk says a very beautiful thing. King David didn't get he wasn't yet healed, but King David knew that if he was prepared to bear himself before God by himself and not wait for the for the regular processes of government to work, then it was for sure that God would have compassion. So the al says, and so too it is in every person's life. In every person's life, even before a person becomes well, but he can know with a certainty that if he can scream out to all of the things that God usually brings into a person's life in order to make him aware and in order to, to cleanse him, in order to, to bring the case before God, and a person says, get all out of here. I don't need all of those aids. I don't need all of those communicative processes because I am already at the point of bringing myself totally before God and showing what I did to myself to God. A person can have a confidence that that kind of a prayer will be answered. Now, the verse ends, the chapter ends off, Yevayshu v'yibalu ma'ayd kal ayvay. Ah, so beautiful. Yeshua Yevayshu raga says all of the all of the prosecutions that man brought up against him brought on himself okay and they can rightfully demand to collect from the man that created them he says now king david says but if a person brings himself before hashem in sincere and deep prayer then he can shame the very man prosecutions that he created against himself he said, you know why the prosecution against man is so bold to prosecute man? Because man was so bold to create those prosecutions against himself. But when man, but when man says, I'm prepared to, to totally return and show God exactly what I did and how regretful I am of what I did, so then those prosecutors have nothing left to say. So it's almost as if King David, on a literal sense, is turning to his enemies and saying, ha-ha, I'm going to be healed, and then you're going to be booshed out. You're going to be totally embarrassed. But on a deeper level, what does it mean? That the prosecution won't be able to open up its mouth because I've destroyed the prosecution by, being, by, by a willingness of bearing myself totally before God. Okay, I'll stop at this point. <clears throat> and I'll gladly take questions if there are. Yeah, Harvey. That's ex. What you're just saying now. Uh, let me let me just uh, repeat it for the sake of those that will listen to tapes later. Yes, the process of confession is exactly everything that we described. 
It's the acceptance of the, of the, of the suffering healing process. It's the recognition that therapy is necessary. It's the petition of, of actually bringing prosecution against oneself so that outside prosecution should not be necessary. It's exactly what it is. And if you want more material on that, how Vida is described that way, look in Moses Kadivero. Okay? In his early in the first chapter of his book uh, of his book Palm Tree of Dvora, okay, he talks about this concept that Vidu is exactly this concept. Yes. Thank you very much for reminding me. Okay. Yes. I have a bad memory. Could you wait a minute? I'll answer this one, and then you'll ask your next question. What? Oh, it's related. Good. Kill two birds with one stone, yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, let me answer your second question first, because it's, it, it's a bit technical. Yes. Yes. Okay. The two questions are, what is the significance of prayer at night and crying out to God at night? I made a reference to it and promised to explain it, but didn't. And the second part of it is that there is really no time that the entire world sleeps. So what, what did I mean when I say when the world sleeps? Now let me answer the second question first. The wise man answers the first question first, but I do it the other way. Um, when I say that the world sleeps, what I mean is like this. There's, there's technical reality and relative reality. Okay. Relevant reality means that any what surrounds me, okay, and, and how it affects me. Technical reality is what's true in the absolute sense, okay. Now, when we talk about anything in our um, our service of God, and we try to attach a significance to a particular time or to a particular setting, okay, the thing that is most significant is is the relevant reality, not the technical reality. Why? Because that's where I'm functioning from. That's where I'm, that's where I'm coming from. Those are the things that are playing on me. And that's what makes my openness or closeness to God more possible or less possible. So when I say that the world sleeps, yes, you're perfectly right. In a technical sense, the entire world is never sleeping. But for me, there's a part of the world that I'm living in that's basically asleep. Okay. Now, to get to the more important part of it, what's, what's prayer in, in the dead of the night all about? What's crying in the dead of the night all about? When a person cries, okay, when a person cries, a person can cry because he's living through something that moment by moment is robbing him okay, of equal function or equal activity with the rest of the world. In other words, I see people running, skipping, playing, and doing and going to and fro, okay? And and I then I compare it to myself. I know when I was sick a little while ago, okay? And I was more or less stuck in bed for six weeks. 
It wasn't uh, an unusual thing for me to look out the window and see everybody running back and forth with tremendous energy and, you know, and doing every what thing. And be, being a little bit green with envy that everybody else is doing and here you're stuck here like this. And a person can cry, okay, from the fact that there's a tremendous contrast between the whole world that's spinning outside and how it's come to somewhat of a standstill for myself because something's holding me back. That's one form of tears. That's one form of pain. Right? Now, that's not the form of pain that King David is relating to and committing himself to shed tears to God because King David knows on a very, very deep level that every person is allotted the portion that belongs to them and that's right for them. And therefore, tears that are instigated or initiated or aroused by contrast and comparison itself is not the place where King David's tears come from. Where did the King David's tears come from? King David's tears come in the dead of the night. When the whole world is as inactive as I am, and still I know that God is saying something to me. Still I know that there's some kind of inner turmoil that needs to be confronted and needs to be dealt with. And therefore the tears of night are not the tears of jealousy, of contrast and comparison to what somebody else has that I don't have. But it goes much deeper. It's a very, very private moment where the, what the person hears more than anything else is not the world busying around, but, but hearing the stuff that's going on inside of oneself. It's a much more intimate, it's a, it's a much more intimate moment where the tears are coming from a much, much deeper place it's a moment where the tears are aroused from the fact that the rest of the world sleeps and I am awake and God is awake and, we're, and I'm talking to the one thing that's still awake and trying to bring it closer to me. It's a different thing. And if you've ever done it, I don't wish it on anybody, but if you've ever done it and if you've ever waited actually for the rest of the world to go to sleep, in order to shed a tear for an internal pain, you know that it reaches a much, much deeper place because on a certain level, it's actually prompted and it actually flows much more easily because there's only one thing that's awake. There's only one thing that's arousing the tears within me. The fact that I know that there's a God that's awake when the rest of the world sleeps and is listening to me. And that's the significance of the tears in the dead of the night. Yeah. Only the first part of the night. Some people hold customarily that Tehillim is not recited the first half of the night. There's a Kabbalistic reason for that that I don't profess to know at this time. Maybe for a future class I'll try to find out what it's all about. But it's only the first half of the night. Because the first half of the night, Kabbalistically, is referred to as a period of time where there is prosecution taking place, where there is a certain amount of justice going on. There's an ear of justice. The second half of the night is the part of the night that is slowly building up in momentum to the gift of another day. The, 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 the cross line is Chatzos, midnight. 
and therefore classically from midnight and on is considered a period of time of tremendous compassion because it's already mirroring the gift of a new day, the gift of love and, and the loving kindness of the new opportunity, the new creation. And that's why, okay, King David rose at Chatzos and, and, and sang the Tehillim to God and then, and, then, and then learned in that period of time. Yeah. I'll have to I'll have to research that more. There is, but the, I'm not clear of what the difference is. Yes, yes, yes. Speak up. That's an excellent addendum. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. It's it's uh, it's 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 difficult to, to um, it's difficult to know. It's difficult to know because it would it would seem that King David was sick. Okay, in different periods in his life. Okay, it seems that King David was sick after the episode with Bathsheba. There was another time that King David was sick after he counted the people unnecessarily, and there was an epidemic in the people. He got sick then. There are various times that King David was sick, and it's not clear, it's not completely clear if this particular mizmar upon which sickness King David expressed this, this, this song to God. It's not clear. Um, there was a sickness that the Yerush, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Yerushalmi talks about that King David was sick for three years with unbelievable Yisurim, with unbelievable uh, pain. What the exact diagnosis was, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I wasn't able to, to find the Yerushalmi that it's quoted from. That one is most clearly related to the episode after Bathsheba. Um, it's not completely clear. You know, it doesn't say specifically what, what the diagnosis was. However, the Yerushalmi does say that the Yusurim were unbelievable Yusurim. I mean, I don't remember exactly what they were compared to, okay, right at this moment, but they, they were... Again, it's not, it's, it's not, to me, right now it's not clear to me because it's it, it's not at least to me it was vague exactly which period of time in King David's life it's a, you know it was it was taking place in not completely yeah, clear to me yes that's 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 the most prevalent opinion but there there is there is a lot of talk back and forth 
Yeah. Beneginas. Beneginas means in melody. That's what it comes from the word nigun, which means in in melody. There was there was there was music that was only music. There was music, the part and and song part. You know, and there was where they were both together. The Neginos meant that part of this was presented just in melody. In other words, the total composition had a piece within it that was total melody. That would be the Benigina. This is according to the interpretation of the Radak. Okay, it's time for refreshments. Okay, be well.